Good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. It can be found on page 875 in the Black Bibles if you don't have one. Uh, If you need a Bible, don't have one at home, feel free to to keep the Bibles that you see under the chairs there, but you can follow along today with us for sure. Uh, Luke chapter 16. We're continuing a series that we're calling Meet Jesus. And through this series, we're looking at portraits of Jesus from Luke and also the book of Acts, which was also written by uh, Luke's, we'll get to Acts here in a little while, a few weeks. Uh, but as we're doing that, we're being refreshed. We're renewing our minds, if you will, as to who Jesus is. Because we, we kind of drift into weird thinking, kind of fall back into default mode about uh, how the world works and who Jesus is. And we start to, to retell that story in weird ways. And we need to always come back to the scripture to see what the scripture really says about who Jesus is. And, and also for a lot of you, you may never have really been properly introduced to, to the Bible and what the Bible has to say about this Jesus. Like, who is Jesus? Why do we call this good news? Why does it matter? Uh, and so we're getting to be reminded of these things as we go through this Meet Jesus series. This week, we're calling it Jesus versus Money. Jesus versus Money. Um, so I've got this great uh, quote for you from Paul Tripp. He says, the minute you hear a sermon on materialism, you're glad somebody else is there to hear it. I'll say that again so you can get it. The minute you hear a sermon on materialism, you're glad somebody else is there to hear it. We all think that's someone else's problem, like uh, materialism, money. Uh, but, but I would challenge you, for one thing, Jesus says he's speaking to his disciples at the beginning of this chapter when he tells the story. And then for another thing, we are the richest people in the world. Whenever money comes up, I feel like we need to remind ourselves of that because those of you that are the poorest in the room tend to think of yourselves as poor, but even the poorest of you in the room are the richest people in the world. You're so far beyond anyone else across the globe statistically, and you're so far beyond anyone throughout history. I mean, we live like kings, even the poorest of us. We might envy our neighbors because they have more than we do, but we have more than everybody else in the world. We are filthy rich people, and so we need to hear what Jesus has to say about money. So Jesus versus money. We're going to read Luke 16, verses 1 through 15. Uh, I also want to let you know that there are some tricky things in this section. And so what we're going to do is we look through the section and we're going to try to separate um, the main things from the secondary things. And, and I think we'll be able to do that, do that as it unfolds. Just kind of wanted to warn you on a first reading. It's going to sound weird, um, but hopefully it'll make more sense as we work through it. So Luke 16, 1 through 15. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the dishonest, uh, excuse me, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest 
in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Two more verses, and it's in the next section in most of our Bibles. It says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Let me pray and ask God to help us. As I said, this is a touchy subject for all of us. We all think it's somebody else's problem, right? So let's pray and ask God for help. God, we pray that you would help us. We pray that your spirit would meet us here and open our eyes and our hearts that we would be receptive to your word. Father, I pray that you would show us your kindness to us uh, in whatever dysfunctional ways we think about or deal with our money. We pray that you would change us so that we would be like you. We would be like one who spends everything for others, and we would glorify you in this way, and we would uh, live out the goodness of your son, Jesus. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So several years ago, I had, uh, had a couple of businesses. Uh, most of my adult life, I worked two or three jobs to make ends meet. And so just as an aside, thank you t- to those of you that are partners with the ministry here and, and give. Uh, I have a salary and just I get to work one job, and that's really awesome. So thank you for that. Uh, but over the years, many, uh, many years, I worked two or three jobs at a time. And one of the jobs that I worked for many years as a youth pastor and then also when I was in seminary was I helped run a little division of a travel company where we focused on high school bands and taking them to festivals. So if you're in a high school band, usually you'll go to a big parade or a big festival once a year. Uh, And so I was the travel agent that would put together the package. I would get the hotel rooms. I would get the bus. I would buy the tickets to the the park. um, And I'd put all that together. And then I would serve the groups while they were there and take care of them and make sure everything worked out. Um, So one year I was in seminary preparing for one of these big trips. Uh, I was kind of frantically getting my stuff together. I don't know if you have been through this. When you're trying to get out of town, you know, you're always kind of in a panic mode, trying to get your paperwork shuffled before you get out the door. You know, you're trying to leave for a week, and it seems like it takes two weeks to get ready to get out for a week. You know, it just takes extra work to get it all together. So I'm frantically, like, sorting paperwork in my home office, and I'm, you know, throwing junk mail in this pile, and I'm throwing bills that need to be paid in this folder, and I'm putting important papers for the trip over here, and just sorting stuff out, um, grab the junk pile, throw that away, get the kids, had two kids at this time, get the kids, and my wife, we get the van packed, and we start heading to Florida. We're going to a trip uh, at Disney World, and so we're going to meet two buses worth of high school kids in Florida, and then host them down there, but we're, we're going to get there a couple of days early so that we can take care of everything before they get there. About halfway across the country, we were driving from St. Louis, about halfway across the country, um, I start to realize I'm missing some important things. And of course, uh, I'm, I'm the type of person that, that tries to kind of stuff those panicky feelings. So I'm just kind of trying to act cool, like everything's okay. But my wife always knows when something's wrong. You know, like even if I try to hide it from her, she's like, what? what's wrong? There's something wrong. I'm like, no, I'm fine. Everything's okay, you know. But I, I haven't been able to find what I'm looking for. She sees me at each uh, gas station, and each rest stop fumbling through my briefcase and my backpack, just kind of going through my papers trying to find something. And finally, I told her, I think I lost the check for the tickets. So the guy that runs the offices of our travel business had sent me a cashier's check for 
two buses worth of high school kids to go to Disney World for several days. So that was a $15,000 check. Um, I had lost a $15,000 check. I was calling back to the apartment manager saying, hey, can you go into my home office, go look through my desk and the stacks of paper. Be careful that you don't fall in. It's kind of dangerous. Um, he's sorting through my stuff. He's calling me. We're talking back and forth. He doesn't find it. I ask him to go through my kitchen trash. He's like, it looks like you took the trash out. I ask him to go check the dumpster. He's like, the dumpster's already been emptied. Um, and I realize I have thrown away $15,000. I'm in big trouble. I am in a panic, right? And that's the kind of situation we find this dishonest manager in. We find him panicking, right? He, he's about to lose his job. He doesn't know what else he can do. He's too old to dig. He's too ashamed to beg. And so he figures out a solution. He figures out a way to take care of himself so that he's not thrown out on the streets. And so the first thing that I think we see about money with what this manager does is that money is a useful tool. Jesus shows us that money is something that we can use. Instead of letting money use us, we should use money. See, often what we're going to see through the story is often we serve money as if it is our Savior instead of using money as a tool to bless other people. So if we have a real Savior that can really take care of us, then money is just a tool. If we don't have a real Savior, money quickly becomes everything to us. And we become very desperate about our money. So the first thing we see is that money is a useful tool. And we see this as the story unfolds, as he's talking about this rich man higher up, has a manager taking care of things. Charges are brought to him that this manager is wasting his money. And so he calls him in and he says, you're in trouble. You've been wasting my money. Bring me an accounting of it and you're no longer going to be manager. So basically he's already fired. But the manager is now thinking to himself, what shall I do? says, what can I do? I'm, I'm too ashamed to beg. I'm too weak to dig. So I'm in big trouble. So this is what he decides to do. He says in verse 4, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. He recognizes the emergency. I'm in deep trouble. And there's a huge lesson for us here. Jesus is using this parable to tell us greater spiritual realities. For us to settle our future spiritually, we have to recognize that we're in deep trouble right now spiritually. You have to recognize that you're in danger of being out on the street spiritually, right? He's, he's looking to build a future home for himself. And so Jesus goes on with the story, and he says, uh, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of oil. He says, take your bill, write 50. Another guy comes in, he owes 100 measures of wheat. Take your bill, write 80. We're not sure exactly the percentages, and frankly, I don't think it matters, right? This is one of those confusing details that probably would have made sense in the first century. You know, there was like a different exchange rate for oil than there was wheat, and we're not too concerned about that. The big idea is we see him reducing the debt. Now, there's two big interpretations of this passage. There's actually like 10 other interpretations, but kind of two most simple, most obvious interpretations. One is this, this guy is unrighteous and had been taking what didn't belong to him, and now he's continuing to do that in a shrewd way to set himself up for the future, right? And that would be a little confusing to us, but I would say, you know what? Jesus can use a negative example if he wants to. Jesus is not telling us to go out and be dishonest. He's just telling us to recognize the gravity of our situation, 
and do what we need to do to take care of our eternal situation. Take care of your future. Recognize that you've got a spiritual problem now. Do what you need to do to take care of that problem, right? Now, I actually believe the second interpretation, which is a little easier to stomach, and that is that part of his dishonesty had been taking too much from people. So now he's going back and making things right. He'd been charging too much interest, and now he's reducing down the debt. So he's making people on his side. He's also pleasing his boss at the same time. And I think that makes a little more sense because of the commendation of the the manager, right? Because the manager commends him. Look at verse 8. It says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Jesus goes on and says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So again, I'm not sure that it matters that much which interpretation you take. And so this is kind of a general way uh, for us to understand how to read the Bible, is that there's always going to be a detail here and there that's going to throw you off. And what you want to do is you want to, first of all, take Scripture and compare it with Scripture. Like what are concepts that Jesus says in other places where it's more clear, and then that helps you to interpret these less clear passages. And then secondarily, if you can, if you can kind of find the main idea of a passage, uh, then the secondary details are not as important. And that's helpful when we come to confusing passages, right? And so what I would say is, you know, the first or the second interpretation is probably okay. Either way, Jesus is saying, this guy was in trouble, and he did what he needed to do to take care of his situation. And so I want you to think about this. You may have warning flags right now that you are spiritually in trouble. Are you doing anything about it? Are you doing anything about it? Matt Chandler uses this illustration often of um, you're switching the lights on and on and on and off in your house, and there's some kind of wiring problem. He's like, you should call the electrician then. Don't wait until your house burns down, right? Like, don't wait until the house is on fire. If you've got issues, deal with it now. And so I think that's the main idea of this passage. This guy recognizes he's in deep trouble, and he takes steps to fix it. Is Jesus telling us to be dishonest? I don't think Jesus is telling us to be dishonest. I think he's saying, get your stuff together, right? Your future matters more than your now. What are you going to do to take care of your future? He goes on and he says, so the sons of this generation are sometimes smarter than the sons of light. Sometimes they have a a better awareness of these things. Verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Again, kind of a confusing phrase. I think he's just saying, you know, spend this life, which is a mixed up jumble of sin and righteousness, good and bad. There's unrighteous stuff. There's good stuff. Use this life. Spend it well so that your future is taken care of. Look forward to a future where things matter. Make sure you have an eternal dwelling. Don't focus so much on your now dwelling that you miss the eternal dwelling. And so again, I think we're seeing here that money is just a tool. It's just a tool. And how you use the tool of money reflects on your ability to see the future versus just focused on right now. How do you use the tool of money? I have a picture here of a tool that a lot of folks have. I have one of these. This is a hatchet, um, just a basic tool. You know, a lot of times I like to have you raise your hands to share experiences, be a little interactive. I'm not going to do this one, but I'm thinking there might be a couple of people in the room that have used a hatchet to murder people, right? There might be just a couple of you. I know you probably don't want to raise your hand about it, but you can use a tool for unrighteous things, right? You can use a tool to do horrible things. That doesn't make the tool horrible, right? I mean, that makes you horrible. And money is the same issue, right? Money can be used 
for good or for bad. And Jesus is saying, yeah, make, make sure you use your money for good stuff. And make sure you don't see the tool itself, money, as everything. It's just a tool. It's just temporary. If you see money as your God, if you see money as your Savior, if you see money as everything, then, then you're not going to be able to recognize who the real God is. You're not going to be able to look forward and think about where is my eternity going to be? How am I going to be set up in a spiritual sense for the future? So, so make sure you understand that money's it's just a thing. It's just a tool to be used. You can use it for good things or for bad things. So one way to think about it is this way. Do you use, do you use money for human flourishing or just for yourself? Right? Is it just about you or is it about others? Is it about glorifying God? Is it about helping others or is it just for yourself? We're called on to use money as a tool to bless other people. To use money as a temporary thing, recognizing that it's here today, gone tomorrow, and we have an eternity, a future that we should be more concerned about than the here and now. Don't be so obsessed with the here and now that you miss the eternity that God is calling us to. And so that's kind of where Jesus is starting with this. Think about eternity. What's, what's your eternal dwelling going to be like? Are you using money as a tool along the way to get to an eternity that matters a whole lot more than the here and now? That's the question he's shaking us up with. Now, Jesus is going to give us some more details that I think help so you can see why I'm interpreting this parable that way as we unfold, right? Jesus is going to give some more clarity in the next section. He's going to tell us that money can be a false god. So you've already heard me allude to this. Money can be everything to us, and if money is everything to us, then it's a false god that can't really save us. And then it throws off our whole view and vision of eternity. So look at verse 10. It says, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And so this is a theme that comes out in other places in scriptures. What we do with the little things are little, uh, little insights into our heart, right? So if you are obsessing over money, chances are you're seeing money as your God, instead of just a tool, instead of just a temporary thing that is here today and gone tomorrow. He goes on in verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? So Jesus is saying, there's this temporary thing, money. It's a tool. It can be used for good or bad. He calls it unrighteous here. I don't think Jesus, again, out of context and out of everything else the New Testament says, is saying money is always unrighteous he's contrasting it, right? He's saying the temporary unrighteous money of this world versus true wealth. There's the true riches, right? He talks about uh, storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus often references this idea that there's a true riches that are greater than earthly riches. And he's saying here that how you use the temporary or unrighteous or throwaway money of this world is an indicator of whether or not you're going to inherit true riches, true wealth, heavenly money, so to speak. He goes on in verse 12. If you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And so this is the strongest statement here where he's saying the money in your pocket right now, the money in your bank account, it's not yours. It's not yours. The, the biblical view is that all money belongs to God. 
all money belongs to God. Now, I just want to make an aside, and this is tricky because of our political climate right now. I, I would just say that I don't think that the Bible advocates communism or socialism as something that's demanded. We often see Christians volunteering their wealth because they know that Jesus has taken care of them. But when you look at the Old Testament, it is something like capitalism where God allows people to own stuff. God is okay with people owning stuff, although I would say it's a different kind of capitalism because there was a reset every seven and every 49 years. So it was kind of like a reset, different kind of capitalism than than we have today. So it's a little hard to compare apples to apples, uh, or it's more like apples to oranges in some ways. But in general, I would say the Bible honors that it's okay for us to own stuff, but it says underneath that or behind that, we have to always recognize it's not really mine. It's not really mine, it's God's. God has entrusted it to me temporarily. So in a legal sense, maybe we own stuff, but before God, I don't own anything. It's all his. It's all his money. It's all his resources, and we have to acknowledge that before God, and that's what Jesus is emphasizing here. I'll read the verse again just to to clarify. It says in verse 12, if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Jesus is saying we're all like the steward. We either manage God's money well or we manage it poorly. We either think it's all ours and we're selfish and hoard it, or we recognize it's God and we spend it on the things that God would care about. He goes on then in verse 13, and this is kind of the climax of this section. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Other translations often say you cannot serve God and mammon. Some of y'all have a translation that says that. That's kind of a way of personifying money as like a a God. Um, So the idea here is that you can't serve God and serve money. One is a real God and one is a false God. They can't be God at the same time. One of them's real and one of them's not. And the Bible would argue that money is not the real God that the God that made all things, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He is the real God. He's the one that cares about us, that loves us, that pays our debts at His own cost. So we often think about false gods in the concept of idols here. Here's a picture of a golden calf, kind of like what the Israelites formed when Moses was up on the mountain, right? God, the real God, had saved them and brought them out of slavery, and then Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, which say, I'm the real God, don't make fake gods and serve them, right? So while Moses is getting that stuff from God, down below, they're making fake gods and serving them. They're making a golden calf. And it's easy for us to think about false gods as statues, because that's the most concrete expression of it, right? The Bible definitely forbids worshiping statues, right? It it tells us that the only real icon that's ever been made of the invisible God is Jesus himself. That's the one we can worship. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we can worship Jesus, but we're not to make these, uh, these golden statues and worship them, right? So that often is what we think of when we think of idolatry or false gods. Jesus is saying here that money can be a false god. So I would say by, uh, by virtue of that, by logical extension, any system that you're relying on to secure you and save you can be a false god. Martin Luther says it this way, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional Savior. 
That's a big question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Here, Jesus is focusing on money. And as I said, kind of no matter where you stand in the picture, you're still filthy rich, right? I mean, you're still the richest person in the world, even if you're the poorest person in this room. Um, so I've, I've, over the years, been the poorest person in the room many times. I'd say I'm, I think I'm somewhere middle class now, right? Uh, but I've been the poorest person in the room. I know what that feels like. You know what? The poorest person in the room can, can make an idol out of money because you can obsess about it and you can think if I just had a bunch of money, I'd be okay. And you can make money into an idol but also the richest person in the room can make an idol out of money. They can think, I am okay, because I've got a lot of money, and everything's going to be okay. There's a um, parable that Jesus gives at the end of chapter 16 that I'd encourage you to read this week. It compares the poor man who had nothing with the rich man who thought he had everything and who missed salvation because he thought he had everything he needed in his riches. Uh, Again, another warning to us. So, Jesus here is warning us, whether you're poor or whether you're rich, you can make money into a false god. Money can't save us. It's not a good god. It's not a good savior. It won't really save us. 1 Timothy 6.10 says it this way, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So again, we need to clarify that it's the love of money, not money itself, right? So again, this is one of those places where You have to kind of thread the needle and go, okay, God's not saying that money itself is absolutely evil and don't touch it. He's saying use it for his glory. Use it for good. Make it a tool that serves your real Savior, who is God. And so we need to recognize that loving it and obsessing over it, that's how we know that it's becoming a false God for us. I think here are some kind of boundaries for us. Generosity to those that are struggling. That, that's a good way to show that we're using money as a tool to serve God instead of using money as a God, right? If you can be generous to other people that are hurting. Because if you know the gospel, you know that we're all spiritually hurting and God gave us great riches, life through Jesus, forgave our sins, and so we can then see everybody else as on a level playing field with us. Instead of being arrogant and thinking, well, I got my stuff together because I earned this money and I'm smart and I'm better than other people, we can recognize, you know what, we, we've all got struggles, and I can be generous with other people because God has been generous with me. I think another boundary marker for us to, to know that we're using money instead of serving money as a false god is generosity towards, towards kingdom values and ministry. And so if we give towards ministry, that's a good indicator that we're loosening our, our death grip on our money. And we're saying, I want to share my money so that other people can know this good news of who Jesus is. Um, But there's a third thing I want to remind us of that's kind of scary for me to say because I'm a pastor, right? Like, Like, I want you to give money and partner with us in our ministries at this church. I think the last two months we were just kind of a little under budget. So I would love, this would be a great time for me to grab your arm and twist it really hard, right? Say, see, you need to give more money. But there's this other warning that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians where he says, your giving must be cheerful. Your giving must be from the heart, right? It, it must be a reflection of the reality and the understanding that God loves you. See, there's a great danger of me saying you need to be generous towards poor people. You need to ge- be generous towards Christian ministries. And you might hear, if you do those things, God will love you and you'll be saved. And you would be misunderstanding completely, right? We don't do those things to be saved. We do those things because we're saved. 
So we recognize that Jesus spent everything on us. And because Jesus spent everything on us, we want to give. So I said in the first service, I can't believe I'm saying this, but if, if you're not giving cheerfully, don't give. Um, part of me really wants to say, just give anyway, it's fine. But I think, I think the Bible says, give cheerfully. Give from the heart because the gospel has, has rocked your world and, and you don't see money as your God anymore and you now hold it loosely and you want to partner with us in ministry because Jesus loves you, not because you're giving to earn any kind of favor with him. Money is not a savior. Money is not a God, and money is not a way to buy God off either. I think a secondary application is we can make anything into false God. So that's another question. Besides, is money a false God to you? Are there other things that are false saviors? Again, Luther says it this way. Whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God, your functional savior. So the things that you're freaked out about, the things that you're worried about, the things that you're dreaming about, the things that you're crying about, the things that you're getting angry about, those are indicators of your false saviors. And God calls on us to repent and just to recognize it, share that with a brother or sister in community, begin to refocus and see that Jesus is the real savior. Jesus is one that actually cares for you and gives to you. All these other false saviors will only take from you and put you in slavery. So to repent of those false saviors and turn to the real God, the Jesus who will save you. The last thing that we can see here is that money cannot justify us. Money cannot justify us. There's a great quote by Robert Murray Machane, who is a Scottish preacher um, of ages gone by, I think maybe 100, 200 years ago. He says this, self-righteousness, this is the largest idol of the human heart, the idol which man loves most and God hates most. self righteousness. So in this passage, Jesus talks about those who would justify self. Righteousness and justify are the exact same word in Greek. They both mean, like, are you okay? Are you right before God? Are you just? So we try to justify ourselves. We try to have self-righteousness, say, I'm okay because I've done these things. It's a very dangerous place to go. Look at verse 14. It says it this way in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed him. Other translations say they sneered at him. And so they hear Jesus saying, you can't love God and love money. And they're like, Jesus is so stupid. Of course you can, because we do, right? They're thinking, we've done, we've pulled this off. We know how to make it work. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't. You can't do it. You can't hold on to the one and hold on to the other at the same time. You got to let go of one. You got to let go of one. He goes on. In verse 15, he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So we all have different methods of doing this. We all have different ways of justifying ourselves, of establishing a self-righteousness, of saying before God and before other people, I'm okay. And when we do that, what we're saying is, so I don't need your help, God. I don't need this Jesus salvation stuff because I have a righteousness of my own and it's through these relationships or it's through this job. I've got this job. I don't need Jesus. This, this job will save me or it's through this money, right? I've got money in the bank. I've got a good retirement, so I don't need to rely on Jesus. I've got all the saving I need to have. Jesus is clarifying for them. You can't have both at the same time. You've got to let go of one. You can't justify yourselves. God knows your hearts. I have a picture here of a 
a 100 grade. Um, any of you ever gotten a 100 on anything? It's like an awesome feeling, right? It's just for a fleeting moment, you're like, I am good, right? Just like, I am righteous. I am justified in the world. Sadly, it only lasts for a second, and then, you know, you got to see on the next one or whatever it may be. The, the Pharisees were justifying themselves in their behaviors. They were always doing stuff and saying, we're right. Those other people, they're the ones with the problems, but we've got the 100. When God looks on us, God smiles on us because of what we've done, and that's a very dangerous position to be in. As Christians, what we say is we say God smiles on us because of what God has done, because of who God is. God is the one that makes us okay through giving us Jesus. Jesus took our sin. Jesus gives us his inheritance as the perfect son. So God delights in us. So we've got the 100, but we don't have the 100 because of how well we've spent our money. We have the 100 because of how Jesus spent his resources for us. And then because he spent his resources for us, we hold our resources more loosely and we say, you know what? It's not everything. It's just temporary. I'm really worried about the true riches the eternal dwellings. That's what I'm really worried about. And Jesus has taken care of that for me. So I can live this life with reckless abandon, with generosity, cheerfully giving, loving other people, because Jesus has got me covered. I'm, I'm going to be okay. So my question for us is, what do you look to to justify yourself? What do you look to to make you righteous? As Machane said it, self-righteousness is the largest idol of the human heart, the idol which man loves most and God hates most. We all try to make ourselves righteous in, in different ways. We need to repent of those things and turn and trust in Jesus, that Jesus is enough. A, a clue for us is what you ridicule, right? The Pharisees were ridiculing Jesus when he was talking about money. They're like, stupid Jesus, you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. I said the other translation said he was, they were sneering at him. So what do you sneer at? What do you ridicule? And that, that's, a, that's a clue. That's an insight that maybe, maybe God is poking at a nerve there in your life. Often the things that I, I struggle with, I struggle with emotionally because it's, it's touching at a deep place in my heart where it's, it's touching at my idols. It's touching at what is most valuable to me. And when I'm, when I'm most free, when I'm most generous, I don't feel the need to ridicule or to sneer, right? I'm, I'm at peace. I'm at peace with God, and I'm at peace then with other people. I can see other people generously because I recognize, man, I'm, I'm messed up just like they are, so I'm, I'm going to have a posture of generosity towards them, not just with my money, but even relationally and how I handle people. And those moments happen when I'm, when I'm really resting in the reality that God has taken care of me. That God has been good to me. As, <clears throat> as we wrap up, I want us to remember that there are a million places throughout the New Testament that really clarify for us that, that Jesus paid our debt. When I was in trouble and lost that $15,000 check, I had my buddy that ran the business and his brother that helped to run the business as well um, on the phone with me when I was at the counter giving me two or three of their credit cards, and I had one of my credit cards, and it took us pooling together all of our resources to, to pull me out of that jam, that $15,000 hole I had gotten myself into. And I ended up paying, paying some interest on that as well. You know, the beautiful thing is that Jesus doesn't just pull us out of our jam, right? He does. He takes our sins upon himself. He, he pays our debt. But he also gives us his inheritance, through union with Christ, God sees us 
as righteous as his very own son. By faith in him, we're hidden in Christ so that our debts have been paid, so that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we can say, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So we know Jesus has taken care of our debts. When we hear the parables that he gives in Matthew 18 and in Luke 7, talking about those that love much because they've had a great debt forgiven, we can say, yeah, that's me. I love Jesus because he took care of my spiritual debt. He paid the price for me. Colossians 2 says that the way he did that was through the cross. He died for us and he rose again. And our debt is covered and the Father delights in us. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us through Jesus. We thank you that you've revealed your kindness to us through Christ, taking our debts and giving us all the riches, all the wealth, all the inheritance of being sons of God. We pray that you would transform us through that, that that would change our lives, that would shape us, that would make us a generous people that love others well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.